We begin in Hebrews 1 from verse 1. Let's read and hear together God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then turn to chapter 2 and from verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Amen. Please do have uh, that passage open before you, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's ask God's help as we come to consider it together. Let's pray. God, our Father, open your word to us, we pray, and open us to your word that we might not only understand its truths in our minds, but that we might receive them in our lives and welcome them and allow them to shape our thinking and to shape our living, and to shape who we are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an old legend, uh, you may have heard it, of a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant down to the market one day. But before long, the servant hurried back in great agitation 
uh, and came to the master and said, Master, you must help me. Uh, down in the marketplace today, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd. And when I turned to look at her, I saw that it was death who had jostled me. She looked straight at me, and there was threat in her eyes. Master, please lend me your horse, for I must hasten away to avoid her. I will ride to Samara, and there I will hide, and death will not find me. So the servant galloped off. The merchant himself, obviously a braver man than his servant, then went down to the market, found death, and accosted her. Why did you frighten my servant this morning? Why did you look at her with threat in your eyes? To which death replied, my look wasn't threatening. I was only surprised. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. We all have to live with the fact that although we don't know when it is, Every one of us has an appointment that we cannot avoid. We prefer to ignore it. Of course, it seems morbid to dwell on it, uh, but all of us at some point sense that threatening look because death is simply one of the great and unavoidable realities of human existence. In the time it takes me to deliver this sermon across the world, about 3,500 people will die. Death is an unavoidable reality, and it leaves us with many questions, not least about the deaths of those we love. But more than anything else this morning, I want to bring the focus right into it, to an even deeper and more personal question. How do you feel about your death? How do you face your death? How do you deal with the fact that you are going to die? It's often because it is so uncomfortable made the subject of jokes. You have the Woody Allen approach, you know, the, the, the famous, I, I, I don't want to be there when it happens. I'm not afraid to die, just don't want to be there. You know, in a more honest moment, in an interview with Esquire magazine, Woody Allen confessed the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror, he said, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. So is that it? Is that all that there is to be said about death, that it's something to be feared or, as Christians, is there something more? It's interesting that when Paul was writing to Corinth and he wanted to remind the Christians at Corinth what was of first importance, what was the good news that he had preached, um, this is what he said, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered as of first importance what I also received, what are his next three words? That Christ died. Here's the, the heart of the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This death is good news of first importance. And, and as we come, as we work through the Apostles' Creed, we come this morning to, to that statement. I believe in this Jesus Christ who died. Uh, so here's our question this morning. What does that death have to do with your death? Let me address uh, something before we go further. The version of the Creed that we are using says that Jesus died and was buried. He descended to the dead. Uh, but you may be aware that that's not the traditional wording of the Apostles' Creed. The traditional wording of the Creed says that he descended into hell. 
And I just want to take a moment to explain as briefly as possible um, uh, the approach that, that we take to this and why we use the form that we do. That's the, probably kind of the most controversial statement in any modern, in any kind of major creed, I think, and there's a, a bit of disagreement about what it means. So as briefly as possible, there have been three main views about that statement, he descended into hell. The first is that it means what at first sight it might appear to mean to us, that between his death and resurrection, Jesus was in hell, as we now understand that word. Uh, the problem is quite simply that the Bible teaches no such thing. And, and, more, and more than that, it strongly implies that that's not true. Hell is a place where sin is punished, but the Bible is clear that when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, it was at the cross that He received in full the punishment of sin. At the moment of His death, the punishment is paid in full. The work of salvation is complete. It's finished, He cries. There's nothing left to pay. There is no more punishment for the sins of Christ's people. No, no reason then for Christ to descend into hell in the sense that we're thinking of there. And of course, he says to the thief on the cross, doesn't he? Today, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. The second approach to this phrase is to emphasize that hell means separation from God's goodness and experiencing instead His judgment. Hell means forfeiting God's blessing and experiencing His curse. So at the cross, sin is placed on Jesus. God punishes sin, and in doing that, He withdraws all blessing so that Christ experiences this awful God-forsakenness. And in that sense, He descends into hell even as He hangs there on the cross. That's another approach that people have taken. Um, that's how Calvin understood the creed, for example, and it is true, of course, that the cross represented spiritual desolation for Jesus. But, but I think the best way to understand the phrase is actually just simpler. The, the Hebrew word sheol, the Greek equivalent Hades, um, they've both at times been translated into English in certain contexts as hell. And it's that word Hades that uh, began to appear in versions of the Apostles' Creed from the end of the fourth century. He descended into Hades. Um, but in Hebrew and Greek thought, Sheol and Hades did not always refer to a place of eternal punishment. Um, the, the, our understanding of what happens after death developed over time. God's revelation is progressive. And so for a long time through Old Testament history, um, God's people would understand what they would say is that, is that people go to Sheol, which is a kind of, it's the place of the dead. That, that's, that's really all that that means. Uh, it really means, we might call it the grave. To say, to say that someone descended to Sheol or to Hades meant nothing more than that they truly died. Their, their existence in this world was over, their life was over, uh, they were gone from this life. Uh, and we happen to know that in the case of the very earliest manuscript of the Apostles' Creed, which includes that phrase, uh, the person who recorded it for us understood it to mean that. Jesus died. So that's, that's the approach that we're taking. That's why we have the version of the creed um, that we do. Uh, so this statement, the whole of it, he died and was buried, he descended into hell, he descended, into, descended to the dead, that simply means that Jesus Christ truly and fully died. He left this realm of existence, he passed into another. And, and the form of words that the creed happens to use shouldn't obscure for us this astonishing fact. In him was life, says John. I am life, said Jesus. 
and yet he died. His breathing stopped. His heart stopped. His body shut down. He left the land of the living, and he was buried, and he truly descended to the grave. And the real question before us this morning is, what then is the significance of this fact? What does the death of Jesus have to do with us, and in particular, our deaths? Does it have anything to do with it? Is my death affected by the death of Jesus in some way? And in answer to those questions, we, we turn to Hebrews 2. And we're going to consider three simple statements that explain the significance of the death of Jesus for us. And, and as we do that, I hope we'll see why Paul described this as of first importance. And I hope we'll see why I gave this sermon the subtitle, The Good News About Death. So the first of these statements then is at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. If you turn to verse 9, that refers to him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's the first thing we need to know about the death of Jesus. The significance of his death is that he has tasted death for everyone, which in context means for everyone who believes in him. And as we face that unavoidable reality that we will one day die, we do so if we're Christians in the light of the fact that Jesus has tasted death for us. What that means, firstly, is that He has gone into death before us, which is a hugely significant thing. You, you know that there are many who offer to be your guide in that journey. There are the moralists, who will tell you, look, you don't need to worry about this. As long as you've lived a good life, you'll be fine. There are the mystics. They will tell you, you know, death is nothing really. Death is just a doorway through which you pass, and you'll then become one with the universe. There are those who will tell you, you know, you'll be reincarnated into something else. Live a good life so it's something good, not a slug. There are there are atheists and humanists who tell you that, well, to be honest, you've got nothing to fear because there's nothing. You just cease to exist. They forget that nothingness is what we fear the most. But, but you know, you don't have to fear what comes later. There's no punishment or anything. You just, just stop. So, there are all sorts of different opinions, but there is one massive, there is a massive problem with all of them. Let me, let me try to illustrate it. Um, we have a friend. I wonder if you... <laughs> I wonder if you have a friend like this. Um, he's the kind of person that things happen to. You know, do you know someone like that? Just, just stuff seems to happen. They're always getting kind of caught up in strange and bizarre circumstances. They just seem to get themselves embroiled in things. Or some people uh, seem to be like that. This guy, he, he's hilarious. Um, and he once found himself roped in to act as a tour guide on a trip to France. Our friend who had never been to France and did not speak French. How, how he gets into these situations, I don't know. One morning he got up, and I kid you not, he told a busload of people that they were going on a trip that day to the Palace of Versailles. <laughs> someone, someone said, I think, I think you mean Versailles, and he said, nope, it says here Versailles. <laughs> now, that's the problem 
with just about anyone telling you about death. Whether it's Muhammad or Confucius or Oprah or the nice humanist at the crematorium, that's the problem. They're, act, they're, they're offering to act as a tour guide for a place they've never been. What did Hamlet call death? Was his to be or not to be speech? The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. But what if? What if there's one traveler who has returned? What if death is now a discovered country? That's the claim of the Bible that we can turn from all of those false guides and find in Jesus one who has gone before us and knows the terrain. He is the only living person qualified to speak with authority about death. There's a little clue in verse 10 um, where he's described as the founder of our salvation. That word founder means the, the leader or the pioneer or the trailblazer of our salvation. Death might be an undiscovered country to us, but it's not to him. He's gone ahead. He's, he's gone through the jungle with the machete. He's cut a path so that we can follow. And now if we look down that path through the gloom, we, we see him there beckoning us on. It's okay. You can come. It's safe. One of the wonderful things about the, the, the God of the Bible is that because He truly became one of us in the person of His Son, God never asks us to do anything that He has not first done. He never asks us to go anywhere that He has not first gone. And so, as we look for a guide to see us safely through death, Christ is the only one. He's the only one who's gone before us into death and yet lives to assure us that He has made the path safe and to beckon us on to, to follow Him in confidence and faith. Jesus has gone into death before us, but the deepest reason for our confidence in the face of death is that this verse says more than that. It says He has gone into death for us. He suffered death so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. We're not going to um, spend long on that this morning, not because it's not important, it's the most important thing in the universe, but because we looked at it last week as we considered the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus. This morning, we just pause, our, pause to remind ourselves of the, the miracle of the grace of God, the wonder of this undeserved, this unimaginable love. This is the reason for all our hope. This is, the, this is the good news. It's the essence of the gospel. Christ, God Himself, in the person of His Son, died for us. He died in our place. He came as our substitute, bearing our penalty. He was pierced for our transgressions. Remember that language from last time in Isaiah 53. He was delivered over to death for our sins, says Paul in Romans 4. He has no sin and yet he suffers death, the penalty of sin, the fullest extent of, of its penalty, death with the sting. He bears in his body the whole weight of the holy judgment of God poured out upon him, the curse exhausted in him, and he does it for us, to taste death for us so that our death need not be like his. We can die safely because of His death. 
The death of Jesus means then, firstly, He has tasted death for everyone. Secondly, because of this, the death of Jesus also means that the power of death is destroyed. Uh, Move on to verse 14. The writer says, since therefore the children, that's you and me, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The death of Jesus means the power of death is destroyed. That's an amazing statement. From Adam onwards, death is the undisputed champion of the world. It has taken on and defeated every human being who's ever lived. Jesus defeats death, and the one who holds death, death's power. How does He defeat death? By dying. By dying. He defeats death by His death. The Puritan John Owen um, has a book. Um, it, it is not, it's not the lightest read, I have to say. It's probably not kind of holiday reading by the pool, um, to, be, to be perfectly honest, uh, for most of us. Um, but, but John Owen's book is worth the price just for the title of the book the death of death in the death of Christ. Isn't that a great expression? The death of death in the death of Christ. Here in His dying, He wins victory. Now, we'll be, we'll be thinking next time, God willing, about the resurrection. Hugely important, of course, again, central to our faith. But it's interesting, the Bible presents the resurrection as a a vindication of all that Jesus said and did. It presents the resurrection as a confirmation of His victory. But in the supreme paradox of history, the victory itself is actually won as He dies. It's at that moment that that He triumphs. That's why Paul says this amazing thing in Colossians 2.15. He says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's talking about the powers of evil in the world. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them by, and you think He's going to say, by the resurrection, He burst out of the grave, and it's amazing. And He says He triumphed over them by the cross. Just, Just... Just picture the cross. This is his triumph, says Paul. Calvin, commenting on that verse, Calvin speaks of how Paul magnificently celebrates the triumph which Christ obtained upon the cross, as if the cross, the symbol of ignominy, had been converted into a triumphal chariot. Right there. In the horrifying bloodbath of Golgotha, Christ wins the victory and defeats Satan. Amazing thing to say. This mangled human being, lifted up on a cross, dying this hideous death, does so not in defeat but in triumph. He he isn't the public spectacle here. Satan is. Christ conquers. How is his death victory? Well, because the real power of death lies in its condemnation. That's why death is so, is so awful. Death is a penalty for sin. The power of death lies in condemnation. Death is a, death is a curse. Death is awful because it, it is a sign of God's displeasure with sinners. But as we saw a moment ago, Christ died in order that He might taste death for us. 
He, he came. He came as one of us. He faced all the power of sin and death and hell. He did it on our behalf, and he won. And I'm not just saying he won because he, he rose from the dead in the end. At every moment of his life, from cradle to cross, he won. Every temptation that came, he won. Every moment when Satan whispered to him, do this, think that way, say this thing. At every moment, he won. And in that winning, all of his obedience, all the way through his life, in his submission to all the suffering that he was called to endure, in all of that, he won a triumph over death, which was then completed when he died to taste death for us. When he accepted the judgment, when he bore the sin, when he exhausted the curse, when he paid the penalty in full. The, 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 the bailiff, if I can put it this way, the bailiff is only frightening if, if you owe money. When the bailiff comes to your door and, and if, you're, if you're a debtor, then, then that's a frightening thing to happen. But if someone else has paid your debt, the bailiff has nothing on you. Death is only frightening because it's condemnation. Death is only frightening because it's judgment. But with that condemnation and judgment gone, death is not frightening anymore. Tim Keller likes to say, if you're a Christian, your judgment day is past. Your sins have already been judged. Your penalty has already been paid. I want to just go a little bit further. Your death has already been died. Someone else died it for you. That's what's being expressed when so often in the New Testament, and Paul especially speaks of how faith in Christ unites us to Him. Remember how Paul, he just, he just hammers that home all the time through the New Testament. Faith unites you to Jesus Christ. So, Romans 6, all who believe in Him have been united to Him in His death. When He died, you were there. You were, you were in Him. You died in Him. He died your death. All of that is happening all, all at one time. Galatians 2, we have been crucified with Him. We were there. Or consider this, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. Death, death is horrible. Of course it's horrible. But yours has already happened. If you're trusting in Christ. The bad news is you have to die. The good news is you already did. Judgment has fallen on your sin. There's nothing more to pay. The bailiff has nothing on you. Do you know the, the story... Um, of the early days of the American frontier when the settlers are, are traveling west, you know, all, all these people traveling west to settle um, and, and across these great, great prairies in the U.S. And, and at times they were plagued by prairie fires. You know, we see at the moment the, what's happening in Australia, things recently in California, and we still see it from time to time that fires break out and, and they're, they're uncontrollable. 
Uh, and sometimes the, the, on the prairies, the grass would catch fire in the heat and, and, and this fire would just rage. It would just spread at this incredible pace. And, and, and the significant thing is it traveled faster than a convoy of people could travel. And so at points, the, the, the settlers, they're, they're moving their way through, across the prairie and they would look up and they realize that there is a wall of fire coming towards them faster than they can possibly escape it. So what do they do? Here's the paradox. They, they, they light a fire. They set fire to the prairie. They turn downwind, and they light a fire, and they burn the grass, and then they move everyone onto the burned grass. And then as the fire comes, it, it comes towards them, and then it stops, and it moves around them to the unburned grass over there, and it moves around the unburned grass over there. And they stand in the middle, and they are safe on the scorched earth. Because where the fire has already burned, it cannot burn again. See what that means for you? The power of death lies in the fact that it is a penalty. It's God's judgment on sin. But if you're a Christian, if you're united to Christ, then your sin has already been judged in Him. His punishment has already been paid in full by Him. He has died your death for you. Sin can demand nothing else from you. The cross of Christ is the one place in the universe where the earth is already burned, and we are safe if we gather here. It's the one place where death can demand nothing of you, where death cannot touch you. Death has no power. In the Bible, Satan is called the accuser. Satan can't accuse God's people. That's what he loves to do. He'll try to. Because he's trying to make you forget. You're forgiven. Satan can no longer say to you, as he once could, that you are a sinner who must die for your sins. He's defeated. Death is crushed to death. And the result of this in turn is what, is what we see finally in, in, here in Hebrews in, in verse 15, Hebrews 2.15, that, that Jesus shared in our humanity so that by His death He might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What a wonderful thing this is. The death of Jesus means that the fear of death is overcome. We still have to face physical death, but for, for the Christian that is death without the sting. Because of the cross of Christ, because He died, because He was buried, because He descended to the dead, because of this, everything that makes death a horror is removed. Everything that makes death fearful is gone. And so, in the very chapter where he says it's of first importance that Christ died, Paul goes on to say that as a result, death is swallowed up in victory, taunts death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. It's condemnation. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has drawn the sting so that it cannot hurt you, and then He beckons you on. He says, when your time comes, it is safe to come to Me. You can walk after Him the path that He has forged. You can rest in Him. And that is peace beyond all peace. 
Let me finish with this. On the, 20, on the 17th of January, 1912, if any of you know the significance of that date, the 17th of January, 1912, uh, was the date that Captain Scott and his men reached the South Pole, uh, only to discover, of course, that Amundsen had beaten them to it by about five weeks. And they set out to make their way back under the most extreme conditions, and what follows uh, is a harrowing story. Uh, they try to make their way back, and there are food depots at different points along the way. And at one point, they come, to, they come to a point, they know the location of the next food depot. By this point, they have walked, bearing in mind the conditions in which they are walking, it's absolutely astonishing, they have walked 1,500 miles. And they are 11 miles from a food depot. Um, but they're exhausted. And the weather comes in. And so they make camp and they hope and pray that the weather will lift, which it does not. It becomes clear that there's not, they can't even try. It becomes very clear what's going to happen. If, if ever in history there was a moment where someone was faced, just, just hit in the face with the reality of their impending death, this is it. Captain Scott, Henry Bores and Bill Wilson uh, lie there in a tent. It's March 1912, and they lie waiting for death. And they, as you would do under those circumstances, they write letters. Uh, one of the letters, um, Captain Scott writes a letter to Bill Wilson's wife, Oriana. And he says, if this letter reaches you, Bill and I will have gone out together. We are very near it now. And I should like you to know how splendid he was at the end everlastingly cheerful. His eyes have a comfortable blue look of hope. Isn't that an amazing phrase? His eyes have a comfortable blue look of hope. Why? Well, for that, you have to read the letter that Bill Wilson himself wrote to his wife that day. I shall simply fall and go to sleep in the snow. Don't be unhappy. All is for the best. I would like to have written to mother and dad and all at home, but it has been impossible. We will all meet after death. And death has no terrors. I leave this life in absolute faith and happy belief that if God wishes you to wait long without me, it will be to some good purpose. All is for the best to those that love God. And oh, we have both loved him with all our lives. The final words of his final letter were, all is well. We all have an appointment, and none of us knows the date and the time. But once we know that Jesus has gone before us into and through death, that he has experienced death for us, that he has disarmed and conquered it. The fear of death is gone. Death has no terrors. The Christian can, can look death in the eye and say in absolute honesty, I am not afraid of you. You have no power over me. I already died. My sin was already judged. You cannot touch me. 
All that you can do is take me to be with Christ, the place I most long to be. In that sense, to die is gain. And that's the good news about death. Let's pray. Father, there is no greater enemy. And, and really, in the end, no greater fear that we can have than the fear of death, however we understand it, whether we think whether it's annihilation, whether it's punishment, whatever it is, death is, is fearsome to us. And Lord, how we thank you that you have opened the way to life everlasting. And we thank you that your son has died our death, has taken our judgment, that we have nothing to fear. We pray that you would speak to our hearts of these things. Father, we remember many who have gone before us, many who have known you and loved you, and who have gone before us. And we thank you that we need not fear for them either, because Christ made the way safe, and they have gone to, gone to you and gone to him. Thank you for these great things. We pray that we might see and know the truth of them. We pray that we might trust, that we might be given confidence, that we might know that we need never fear again, that we might rest in you and know peace in you, whatever our circumstances. Father, if there are any among us who do not yet know you, have not trusted in you for the forgiveness of our sins, we pray that you would not give us peace in the face of death, that we would know that death is for us an undiscovered country, that death is for us something fearful because we haven't dealt with it. We haven't received what Christ has accomplished and so we pray that even today you would give to us the gift of faith to know that Christ died for us, for our sins, rose from the dead, lives and reigns. We pray that by faith you would unite us to him so that we are able to say with joy that I have died, I have been crucified with Christ. My sin has been punished in him. And now there is nothing left to pay. The bailiff has nothing on me. Father, give us this trust, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.